Now, if you are Venezuela, Saudi Arabia, or BP, the year has not started well. Something extraordinary has been happening to the oil price. Mr. Gage, you are now putting another billion dollars of your own money uh, into green innovation. Well, the returns will come uh, partly through the benefits to society, and so... Uh, well, good afternoon, everybody. Today, we're here to announce America's Clean Power Plan, a plan two years in the making, and the single most important step America has ever taken in the fight against global climate change. But I am convinced that no challenge poses a greater threat to our future. Hi, and welcome to this edition of the Off the Charts podcast. I'm your host and executive director of the Energy Policy Institute at UChicago, Sam Warren. Today we're talking oil, U.S. shale oil production to be specific. According to the latest federal estimates, crude output in the onshore areas of the lower 48 U.S., where all shale oil production currently occurs, stood at right around 6.5 million barrels per day in July. Now, that's down from a peak of around 7.7 million barrels per day in March of 2015. But one of the big surprises in oil markets right now is that the drop hasn't been steeper. That's because oil prices were in a state of freefall for most of that period. After averaging more than $100 a barrel for most of the period from 2011 to 2014, U.S. oil prices plummeted to just $47 a barrel in early 2015 and still farther to just $30 a barrel in early 2016. The common wisdom in oil circles had been that U.S. shale oil production would plummet amid such a price collapse, owing to its high break-even costs and steep decline rates, which can be as high as 70% of production in the first month. To date, that hasn't happened. U.S. shale has been incredibly, unexpectedly resilient, with major implications for everything from oil prices and transportation technology to climate change and geopolitics. And with oil prices once again flirting with $50 a barrel, U.S. shale drillers are getting back to work in key regions, leaving many observers to ask, is this the new normal? Has the industry been just completely reshaped? And what's the long-term outlook for shale? With me to discuss is Tom Covert, Assistant Professor at the Booth School of Business. Tom, welcome. Thanks, Sam. So I thought we'd start off with just a little bit of uh, a little bit of background on how we got here. Sure. Um, you know, what's the give us a bit of background on shale oil in the U.S. Where did the industry really get going? What are some of its key characteristics? Sure. So uh, I think to understand shale oil in the United States or unconventional or tight oil, as some people call it, uh, it's important to think about uh, unconventional uh, hydrocarbon production in general in the United States. Shale um, gas in particular. Shale gas, yeah. So that which goes back uh, actually in some in, by some historical accounts to the late '90s. Um, and the, and the sort of the important distinction between shale or between unconventional and what we typically call conventional um, are that these shale formations like the, the Barnett and Marcellus shales that produce gas or the Bakken or the Permian shales that produce oil um, are that they require, um, they require fracking technology to be productive, um, which is one of the reasons why it took so long uh, for these things to be developed, um, but also because they, are, they have a very different sort of economic risk-reward profile than conventional exploration. And the, the, the big difference that you should have in mind is that when you're, when you're developing a conventional uh, play, like so for example, uh, offshore in the Gulf of Mexico or, uh, or some of the onshore plays that you'd think about when you'd see a movie about the early oil industry with, with gushers, uh, that's kind of like a finding a needle in a haystack type problem. So you're looking for some kind of concentrated deposit of oil that will, you know, won't necessarily be easy to find from the surface, and you'll have to drill a lot of dry holes to find it in the first place. Once you do find it, though, it's easy to produce from, um, and you will have really sort of struck it rich. It's, it's kind of like the, 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 tr the, true, the true sense of the word of oil being black gold. Um, 
So that's sort of conventional. It's, uh, sort of uh, lots of lots of dry holes, lots of lots of uh, capital expenditures uh, with nothing to show for it. Um, uh, but once you do find once once you do find something, it's sort of extremely profitable. Now these shale formations, on the other hand, uh, is, uh, after uh, the engineering profession had sort of cracked the code for how fracking sort of w was going to work, um, these are formations that people have known about uh, for quite some time. Um, and as soon as we understood that fracking could make them productive, there was much lower risk of, of sort of dry holes. And so it sort of meant that um, in the Bakken or in the Marcellus or the Permian, um, uh, E&P companies could go in, they could drill holes in, in a variety of locations in sort of regularly spaced intervals and be pretty confident that, that all those holes would be, would be profitable. Now, they wouldn't be gushers the way that we think about, you know, traditional conventional exploration often is, um, but they would certainly, you know, be NPV positive and sometimes very, very much NPV positive. And so there's a very different kind of risk-reward uh, profile um, in the shale business than there was in the sort of conventional hydrocarbon exploration business. Um, now, one of the pieces uh, to making this, this thing work, of course, was, was figuring out how to use fracking technology. Um, and that, was, and that, that is something that, that did take a long time. Uh, it took the industry a lot of trial and error, um, and a lot of, and, you know, some people would argue with some help from the DOE in the, the early phases uh, of the business. But it took some time to actually figure out how the basic formula for fracking, which sort of involves pumping a high-pressure mixture of water, sand, and some chemicals, uh, through a horizontal wellbore, as opposed to a traditional vertical wellbore, um, could could cause these formations to, to be productive that in, in ways that they wouldn't be in the absence of, of a fracking job. So you know how you know where we are. We're right right now. We're in a place where there's a lot of productive, economically viable shell formations in the United States. Um, these things have, as I said, different risk reward profiles, um, and they are in in a lot of interesting ways responding differently to the oil price change that we've recently experienced than a lot of people expected uh, they would, would do. And so, you know, just to put a finer point on the history, so you had really, uh, I think, in rough terms, the shale gas industry, the shale gas boom in the U.S. get really roaring uh, in the mid-2000s, 2005, 2006. You had this huge That's increase right. in U.S. natural gas production. Um, the economics around natural gas and oil shifted in interesting ways around the recession. That's right. We had a big collapse in natural gas prices. Coming out of the recession, you had a huge increase in oil prices. That's right. And not so much from natural gas prices. And so you had this great opportunity for drillers to move uh, men, uh, equipment, and capital over from gas to oil and That's right, unlock yep. this massive uh, shale oil boom in the U.S. You know, it, not just for oil, but if you even think back across the whole history of the shale boom, I can think back to uh, 2007, 2008, when natural gas prices uh, coming out of, let's say, 2008 into the recession, when natural gas prices started falling, everyone said, this is going to be the end of, uh, of times for, for the shale gas industry. That's right. Um, yep. They don't have, you know, um, the economics to make this work. And, oh, they might have some hedges that will carry them through was kind of like the next excuse. But then the hedges unwound and they still didn't, you know, go poof and disappear. Mm -hmm. um, and they survived that price collapse. And the shale oil industry seems to be in many ways surviving uh, this price collapse. Why does every, why is the common uh, wisdom, why is there this built-in assumption that shale is expensive? Um, I think it, it arises from a, a pretty basic uh, misconception 
that um, that you know you'd face when you're trying to compare the economics of a, of conventional exploration, which is what you know energy industry observers have been thinking about for you know since the energy business existed. Uh, so comparing conventional exploration to, to shale exploration. And the reason for that is um, when you think about what does it actually cost to develop a shale uh, formation, that cost number doesn't mean the same thing as it would in a conventional uh, formation, uh, precisely because the risk-reward um, ratios and the, the sort of the structure of risks and rewards in the shale business are so different. So if you think back to when gas prices collapsed or uh, um, around the recession or when oil prices collapsed in the last two years, um, it was very easy for somebody to look at um, projections from oil and gas companies about how much they were spending per well and how much uh, oil or gas they were getting out of those wells and say, look, you know, those numbers are not going to work when, you know, you cut prices in half. Um, or, or even they would make a comparison, right, to old conventional wells. I saw ve- over the years many times people would say, well, a new well in the Bakken costs, you know, 8 to $10 million, yep. and an onshore well in the U.S. used to cost $500,000. Yeah, exactly. And boy, how is this going to... Yeah, how could that wor- possibly work? Right. You know, and there's, there's, a, there's a lot of ways to look at that. So one is that there aren't any more, you know, half-million-dollar conventional wells that we can easily exploit to our heart's consent, uh, content in the United States, uh, or in many parts of the world, for that matter. Um, but uh, the the big difference there is that um, those those un- those conventional wells that you could drill for half a million dollars and you know get you know positive NPVs those were wells that had in some sense already been de-risked um, and so it's it's not necessarily you know a fair comparison so you know that there is a easily exploitable in the sort of engineering sense pocket of oil that you just have to decide when is the right time to to sink the hole for that's not the same thing as 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 what's what's happening in shale these days because uh, while they are easy to exploit in the sense that they are you know we you know we have a much better understanding of the engineering problem um, it isn't just a half million dollar expenditure and it's an expenditure that involves a you know fine tuning a whole bunch of of inputs uh, both, you know, with respect to our understanding of the engineering problem, but also with respect to uh, the prices of output and the prices of input. So uh, it's just it's it's unfortunately not a, an easy apples to apples com- uh, comparison. Um, and I think that is the root of one of the reasons why these forecasts about how shale would respond to lower prices um, seem to have been a bit off the mark. So that's one reason. Um what are some others? I mean, I think if you look back in this period, if let's just focus on oil for a second. If you think back to 2010, 2011, 2012, I know I read many an investment bank note that said that the uh, the quote unquote break even uh, price or the marginal cost uh, of for the next shale well in the U.S. in some of these plays. Uh, was anywhere from $80 a barrel on kind of the low end. You had many others saying $100, $110 a barrel with the implication that if, you know, in order to sustain production and continue to grow, that was the price that was needed. And if you had anything less than that, it would be, you know, impossible to, to, to grow, never mind sustain production. So there's a bunch of things that go into those numbers. And I'm glad you asked because, you know, it's sort of related to this, uh, this post we have uh, on, 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 on uh, the, the Forbes website now. Um, so one of the things that is going to make, make those numbers you know, hard to interpret and you know, make, make it easy for you to be misled by them, of course, is that the cost per well is going to be a function of what you are paying your service contractors for costs, right? So if Halliburton and Schlumberger um, uh, have a lot of negotiating power against you because oil prices are high, uh, because you've got lots of uh, competing firms trying to buy the same services from them, uh, the cost for each unit, say, of, of fracking effort, let's, let's imagine, is going to be pretty high. And so uh, that, that's going to translate into high cost per well. 
So one way in which those those cost forecasts can, can be very easily off is that if service contract contracting fees go down, costs per barrel are going to go down just by construction. So even if the even if the sort of engineering decisions that uh, an ENP company uh, makes don't change at all in response to falling oil prices or to or to falling service costs, the cost per barrel is just going to go down because the cost of, of services. There's down. just a cyclical nature to yeah, it. Cyclical that. nature to that, and I think you know if you look at if you look at the stock prices for Schlumberger and for Halliburton and for for um, for service contractors like that, you know those basically move not quite in lockstep, but they you know have quite quite a positive correlation with oil prices, and it's because you know when oil prices are high. Um, E&P companies are willing to pay a lot for those services, and when oil prices are low, they're willing to pay a lot less. Um, so that's one reason why why those sort of cost per barrel numbers um, are gonna are gonna be somewhat misleading when trying to imagine um, what costs you know might be in the future. The second reason, and this is gonna sort of play into this uh, this idea we, we touched on briefly um, about uh, sort of a difference in the sort of risk reward profiles for. For shale, for shale versus conventional, is that um, the the actual engineering problem of fracking involves a sort of a variable cost decision on, on the part of on the, on the part of ENP companies. So what does that mean? If you think about a conventional well as we spend a half a million dollars drilling a hole in the ground and we just wait for the oil to start, oil to sort of come out of the ground, um, the the problem that a that that a shale producer faces is going to involve, in addition to that vertical hole, they have to also drill a horizontal hole. That's also, you know, more or less fixed. Of course, it, you can get cheaper when service costs are cheaper, and you can get more expensive when service costs are more expensive. But the thing where, where, uh, where the, pla- the place where these, where these two uh, models really diverge is where, uh, is where fracking comes in. And fracking is not um, a one-size-fits-all thing. It's not. It's not a process that uh, that the industry has sort of come to perfect agreement upon. And so, different operators are making different choices with how they do fracking. In particular, how much sand and water they're using, what kinds of chemicals they're using, what kinds of downhole hardware they're using. Um, and just based on the the, the the raw evidence that that different producers are making different choices, makes it pretty easy for us to conclude that. You know that they could be changing. They could they could change those choices in response to changes in prices, right? So even if service contracting prices hadn't fall hadn't fell, hadn't fallen by as much as they have, um, it was still possible for for any E and P companies uh, in response to say lower oil prices to scale back the extent to which they're fracking each of these wells, right? So when oil when oil goes from a hundred dollars a barrel to fifty dollars a barrel, you could it could still be profitable to to complete one of these wells just with a less aggressive fracking job. Now that doesn't mean they're going to get as much oil out of each of those wells as they used to get, but it does mean that they're going to be continuing to add to the supply curve, um, and it's going to mean that that the cost per barrel that we used to see them having uh, was not necessarily the right cost per barrel because they can actually respond to changes in prices. Now, um, in addition to you know res- responding to changes in, in input output prices, you can also respond to changes in input prices, right? So as as your service contracting costs go down, you can you could choose to actually expand the extent to which you're actually fracking these wells, right? Which is also going to cause you cause your your cost per barrel to change. So there's a so there's a bunch of reasons why it's pretty easy to see that. Um, that a that a, a simple calculation of cost per barrel made, say in you know the fall of 2014, when a company was reporting that they were spending eight million dollars on a well and they're expecting to get you know half a million barrels of oil out of that well, um, would lead you to come to a cost per barrel number that isn't sort of right in the sense of how much would it cost them to produce in a different cost environment. So the so the uh, the historical kind of approach of taking a a, a marginal cost. Or a, or a break-even price at a fixed point in time has some fundamental weaknesses. It has some fundamental weaknesses in general, I would say, um, but it's especially vulnerable to uh, situations where, um, where where firms can adjust their their operating decisions, and that's um, precisely you know what makes shale different than sort of conventional EMP exploration. 
And so, you know, we've had this industry uh, in the U.S. now for a little more than 10 years. There was this kind of assumption that it was toward the top end of the global cost curve. Um, and we've talked a little bit about some reasons why people thought that was the case. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, why that it was there was a it's a divergence in, in terms of the practices from conventional wells. There are some additional, um, you know, uh, fixed costs in terms of the, you know, drilling a super deep well and a long lateral. And you have these other factors that make it a little bit different in some of the additional variable costs. But, you know, what did we learn from the price crash? So we, 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 we know that um, we know that. There were, that there were potentially some some judgments made on the front end about what this what the resource cost and what it, what was needed. We then had a we, we were kind of living through a natural experiment in some ways where we've got a major price crash that's extended now for roughly two years. Uh, and what have we learned from that? Um, well, so we've learned a couple things. One is that one one is one is what we just talked about, which is that a cost per barrel number is is, is not going to be a very useful tool in forecasting future supply. Um, and that that uh, that's that, that sort of means two things. One, it one it means that if you're trying to look at a particular firm and predict their their output uh, some sometime in the future, you're you're going to have trouble if you just use a cost per barrel type approach. The second is that interpreting a, um, a, a sort of an aggregate cost per barrel number relative to you know estimates of what you know you know Middle East uh, conventional uh, marginal cost per barrel are, or you know Russian you know cost per barrel, or uh, offshore or any of these offshore project cost per barrel numbers, um, you might actually you know put North American shale in the wrong part of the supply curve. Um, okay, so that so so that can happen. But I think the you know perhaps the 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 biggest lesson from from the fact that you know production hasn't fallen near nearly as much as we thought it would um, relative to the size of the price decrease um, has been has has been that you know what people were doing or what what EMP companies were doing in the fall of 2014 um, may not even necessarily been the best thing that they could have been doing right and so it's possible actually that. Uh, that as prices fell, they accumulated more information and actually learned how to do what they were doing even better. Um, and so I think that's like sort of the third big source of, um, of, of sort of cost changes that, that are, you know, you're going you're gonna to get wrong when you, think about, when, you, when you think about a cost per barrel number. The, the, this idea that, and so you, you have this, uh, you, as you mentioned, you have a piece up on Forbes.com today talking through kind of the, the, the fall in oil prices and, and why it has had kind of a, a smaller impact than people expected. I think this particular piece, the learning piece, is mm-hmm. probably the piece that people will be the most interested in. Sure, yeah. Uh, in the sense that um, there, this has been a huge question, right? How much of the, how much of the fact that shale has been resilient is cyclical and a result of the kinds of factors you've talked a little bit about so far, you know, the, um, that when prices go down, there's less demand on, on all these service uh, contractors. And so prices can come down for that a little bit. There's this kind of like business cycle element to it, um, versus how much of it is, uh, something that is really more structural that these guys have, have learned under pressure to do this better and that that's going to stick. And so, you know, there's some anecdotal evidence that, you know, as we see now, oil prices ticking back up to the $50 range. Um, some people are pointing that and saying like, you know, see, there has been some structural learning. People are really getting back to work, particularly in the Permian, yep. uh, in a big way right now. And it's because they've adapted and taken, you know, they've taken this period to really hone their operations and figure out how to do some things more efficiently. Where, where, where do we, uh, where do you kind of fall on that? So, uh, you know, based on some research that I've, I've done in my, in my own work, um, I think the learning is a huge part of, of what's actually happened, uh, in the, in the, the years since, since the, since the price crash. Um, 
you know, as I mentioned before, fracking is not a thing that, that we, that, you know, the world did uh, on the scale that we are currently doing sort of before 2003, 2004, and certainly not in oil since, you know, before 2005. Um, and a big part of that was that it was not clear exactly um, how, uh, how, how it could be done most profitably. Right. And so if you actually look at the, the engineering practice uh, in, in North Dakota, which is what I have the most experience with, but um, I'm sure you would see the same patterns if you looked in the Permian or if you looked in Niobrara, um, you'd see that the early wells in, 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 in many of these plays were expensive for a lot of reasons. One is that, uh, is that the service contracting infrastructure wasn't necessarily built out there. So, so the prices of services were especially high, right? Uh, but the second is that, uh, but the second, the second is that uh, the early pioneers in these in these in these plays didn't necessarily know what was the right formula, uh, so to speak. What was the right way to be completing these wells in, in the most profitable manner? And that's a thing that you know they can kind of only learn with a lot of trial and error and with a lot of experience. And some of that's going to be trial and error that they do, uh, you know, in their own shop, so to speak. And some of it is going to come from you know learning from their competitors. Um, and I, I think like the one of the sort of most interesting things about this about about this this price crash is that it happened at a time when a huge wave of wells were coming online that it massively increased the amount of data that oil and gas companies had about how fracking actually works. And so uh, despite the fact that prices fell as much as they did, um, there was an opportunity for for sort of, for sort of reflection, so to speak, so an opportunity for for ENP companies to look at this data uh, and actually figure out what is the right way to be completing these wells. What is the most profitable way to com be completing these wells, or what's the you know the way that sort of maximizes maximizes ROI or whatever their sort of actual objective is. Um, and then you know even though prices fell a whole bunch, all of a sudden they might have they had a better way of doing things than they than than they had before then. Um, now you could you could sort of ask a reasonable question uh, into why is it that they didn't sort of you know learn that stuff before, um, and that's sort of the subject some some ongoing research I have. Um, but it is surely the case that um, that even as prices fell, a whole bunch of information was becoming available um, for you know both experienced and inexperienced ENP companies to, to learn how how better to do things. So why do you think that they didn't learn how to do it before? Um, you know, uh, for if you if you were to ask me before I started this research, my prediction would be that they would have learned it very quickly. I mean, this is a business um, run by um, fairly scientific uh, type of person. Uh, there's a uh, you know there's lots of engineering uh, master's degrees and PhDs in geophysics and engineering PhDs in, in, in that business, um, and they have the ability to raise capital at relatively inexpensive rates, especially at you know sort of at the you know the 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 bigger scale of things, so you know the companies like Exxon and and Hess and and Marathon and, and, and folks like that. Um, so I certainly expected them to learn sort of very quickly. Um, but one of the things that I do see in my research, and I think uh, we will probably continue to see um, in this industry, is that they're surprisingly risk averse. Um, so even though the data might say um, a certain uh, best practice might exist, or the data might suggest that you know that one engineering design might be better than another, it does take a long time for the industry to sort of coalesce around that fact and actually sort of exploit on a large scale. I think even today, if you sort of look at what are the, you know, what are the kinds of, of wells that are being completed in the Bakken or the Permian, there certainly isn't a single single uh, sort of engineering de uh, design there. Uh, de even if you sort of narrow in on sort of very, uh, very sort of geographically precise areas. So even though the two companies may be drilling practically the same piece of rock, they might still be making different engineering decisions. So one more question about the learning, and then I want to talk a, a little bit about some of what you just touched on, which I think really hints at potentially um, a, re, uh, a transformation of the structure of the industry. Uh, but on the learning, you know, a contrarian 
might you know or a point that I often see I often see made on on this uh, on the question of learning is oh well it's really just high grading. These guys are really just going and drilling. Now the prices are low. They've 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 concentrated all their time and energy on the best uh, highest uh, you know initial production rate wells within each of these individual plays. And once they tap that out, then we're going to see that they haven't really it's it hasn't really been learning as much as just a kind of a last ditch effort to salvage production. So I would be disappointed if they weren't doing any high grading right now. I mean, that, that certainly would be the economically rational thing to do. But uh, even in the face of high grading, you can actually see in the data that uh, that um, that these wells are still that, that that this cohort of wells is still more productive than the last cohort of wells, uh, despite or, or you know after you account for uh, high grading. So oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. So I mean, if you look at um, uh, the chart in the Forbes piece that we have, um, what I do is I plot out um, basically a measure of how productive uh, the average well is um, in each cohort. Uh, this is in the Bakken um, between 2005 and 2015. Um, and so, uh, the, the chart basically shows, you know, relative to how productive the, the first say 40 wells were in 2005 or relative, you know, if you're looking at 2009 to 2007 or something, you know, how much more productive is the next cohort than the previous cohort? Uh, and I'm already controlling for basically changes in the length of these wells over time because they, they have tend, tended to be longer. Um, and also I'm controlling for exactly where these wells are. So you can think about this graph as sort of showing you the average uh, gain in productivity over time within a fairly geographically limited um, amount of amount of space. And what you actually see is that, uh, well, first off, you know, the, the wells in, you know, the sort of 2008 to 2012 you know, or 2013 timeframe are much more productive than the early wells, which is sort of no surprise. I think everyone in the industry would sort of recognize that. But even if you look at 2014 and 2015, so uh, years in which, you know, a lot of the price brunt, um, the, the price fall has sort of uh, fallen upon, uh, their productivity gains are still happening. Uh, in fact, if you compare 2015 to 2014, so 2015 is a year in which I think average prices were in the sort of 40-ish, 40 40-something dollars a barrel, those wells are 16% more productive than the wells in 2014. And remember, the middle of 2014 oil was over $100 a barrel. Right. So um, high grading can explain some, you know, some of the sort of the raw uh, changes in, in um in uh, productivity that we see over time. So if you look at, for example, the the EIA product drilling productivity report, that a lot of those a lot of that will will come from things like like high grading. But if you just look at the data and you know ask you know pick a plot of land and ask whether or not uh, the well in that land that's drilled you know in this year is more productive than the well in that land drilled last year, you see that it's more productive this year than last year. Wow. Uh, um, and uh, so that can't that can't necessarily be explained by high grading, but it can be explained by changes in engineering practice, um, which is you know what I think is, is is going on to a large extent. So you know as this data comes in, that you know largely these more aggressive hydraulic fracturing uh, treatments uh, are more productive than the less aggressive ones. Uh, E&P companies are realizing that it's actually worth it to spend the money on the more aggressive treatments and are actually realizing some of those gains. Okay, so that's super interesting. So when people are reading this article, when they see that chart. Uh, and, and the discussion about learning, um, you know, I think that that chart is actually uh, probably something very new for most readers in the sense that it controls for all these things. And this right. is really showing the net of, of high grading, in essence, innovation. That's right. Yeah. That's pretty incredible. Yeah. So, I, I mean, the thing that really surprised me was, was the, the difference between 2014 and 2015. I thought that they would be improving, but maybe not necessarily by that much. Um, and to see a 16% uh, productivity gain between between those two years, even though oil prices, you know, basically halved, is 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 quite remarkable. Right. So okay. So with that kind of uh, what I would say is a, uh, a really stunning, um, I think, data point. 
I think it's a good transition to a discussion about the structure of the industry. Okay. And some of what we talked about, you were just hinting at before a little bit about, um, you know, the risk aversion of, of the industry. And I think that's, that's a good entry point to the first question I have about the structure of the industry, which is, you know, the majors were slow to get into this. They were. Um, and I, my sense is that, that a big part of the reason the majors, the majors, uh, BP, Exxon, um, you know, Shell, Total, and others, what, why they were slow to get into this is, is actually because of the risk-averse nature of that business and that they have a core competency in these big, complex uh, projects offshore, and you know, that's really where they were focused. And they viewed this in the early stages as like a wildcatters, you know, business. And that's why you had all these independents kind of, um, you know, be successful in this, in this, in shale, uh, as opposed to the, as opposed to the majors. Is that, does that sort of line up with how you kind of, how you see things? So yes and no. Um, it is definitely the case that the, that most of the majors missed out on the, the biggest, um, shale plays in North America. Um, you know, one exception of that is Exxon, who bought XTO in 2007, and XTO was one of was one of the the big operators in the Bakken. Right. Although that was, you know, yeah, they bought in it. That case, right? Yeah, they bought it. They in. bought it. That's true. But buying in 2007 was 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 a pretty shrewd move. Yeah. Um, one of the things that's tough is to actually think about uh, a notion of risk aversion that you know spans both the large scale of you know big offshore, um, you know, deep water projects that surely involve a tremendous amount of risk um, and that frequently do fail, as, you know, you see in the news all the time. Um, and comparing uh, the sort of the decision-making process for those kinds of projects with the decision-making process for how should we complete a single well in the Bakken or the Permian. Now, you know, the capital expenditures we're talking about are off by three orders of magnitude, right? So, you know, a, you know, an expensive well these days in the Bakken is $10 million and, um, and an inexpensive offshore, you know, deep water project, you know, might be a billion dollars, right? So, um, how can it be that, you know, that a company that is willing to sort of take a, a $1 billion risk in a big, uh, uh, deep water offshore project, uh, would not be willing to take a $10 million risk or a many, a series of many $10 million risks, uh, in, in you know, in a shale play in North America that they could even diversify. Um, and I think that it actually comes back to this this point you made earlier, which is that the core competency of these of these big companies is actually to do uh, these big, high risk um, projects, usually outside of uh, the developed world. Um, that is, you know, that is in some sense what they are best at, and they don't necessarily have much um, value to add in some sense to 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 you know onshore projects for which the technology you know may not necessarily be known, and for which the technology isn't necessarily going to depend on having an extensive fleet of laboratory science to sort of work things out, but instead will require a bunch of nitty gritty, um, you know, feet on the ground, trial and error um, type projects. And, you know, at some level, you could sort of look at what happened um, where uh, a bunch of independents basically figured this out and uh, the majors didn't as reflecting the fact that a bunch of independents ne didn't necessarily have the, you know, the, the opportunities to try big offshore projects. And so this was what, what they had to deploy their capital to. Um, so, you know, does that mean that the, that the, that, that the, that the independents are not so risk averse and the, that the big uh, super majors um, are risk averse. I don't know. I think that risk aversion is, is, is a hard word to sort of describe to, you know, the, the universe of problems that oil and gas companies face. Um, but it is, it is an unfortunate reality for their shareholders that they missed out on, they missed out on uh, shale in North America. That's true. Uh, the, uh, I mean, the reason I'm interested in it is because, you know, to the extent that, uh, you know, I guess there's a, there's a picture you could paint where the current model uh, that the majors have pursued is in some ways 
you know, not going to be sustainable for all of them. Um, and I was also kind of fascinated by an article I read uh, on Bloomberg this week. And there was a quote in there, and it was kind of about the structure of the industry, in particular with the with the super majors. And there was a quote in there from a consultant who had kind of tallied up uh, capital spending and production for the super majors, uh, and he found that uh, 1.5 trillion in capital spending by the top eight uh, big companies actually produced a decline of a million barrels of oil equivalent production per day um, between 2003 and 2015 okay. across those companies. And that, uh, in contrast, the U.S. shale industry raised its output by four and a half million barrels per day uh, over the same period for like a tiny fraction of that right. kind of capital spending. Right. And we know that, you know, uh, shale, much of shale production, certainly in the U.S., is essentially just drilling source rock, right? Yep. We're going back to the places where, right. if you, you know, if you look at the oil industry, the modern oil industry in the U.S. was founded in Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. and that's where the Titusville. That's where the uh, shale gas Colonel Drake drilled his uh, drilled his well there. That's where the the you know the biggest shale gas field, the Marcellus, is you know is found. And so, you know, you can trace the the steps of the original oil industry from the mid 1800s to the mid 1950s across Pennsylvania and Ohio and Indiana and Illinois and down to Texas and yep. then Oklahoma and then eventually California. to California. Yep. And we know that all these places are all now huge shale hotspots. Mm-hmm. And we know that there's a global oil industry yep. and there's source rock all over That's the world. Right. And if the super majors have or either have already missed or continue to miss out on, on this development opportunity, it seems so, like it's a, it's a gloomy picture for them going so forward. That is a possibility. Um, I think there's... There's two things going on, and they're going to be good at one of them and not necessarily good at the other. So one thing going on is that, you know, these shale wells are going to be smaller. Uh, so, uh, you know, like I said, typical, you know, even a great well in the Bakken or the Permian is, is a well that, you know, is expected to produce a million barrels over its lifetime, whereas, you know, lots of these offshore projects are, you know, two or two, two orders of magnitude more than that. Um, so, uh, so... If you have a big supply of, say, North American shale shale wells that can, you know, that can be drilled inexpensively by a fairly competitive fleet of independents, that's going to be a problem. That's going to sort of introduce a flattening out in the supply curve for oil, which will definitely be a problem um, for for the majors because they sort of rely on price spikes um, and you know, and a supply curve that steeps you know pretty pretty steeply upwards um, at, at points in order to you know in order to 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 make their to make their money. So if they're you know if the the shale industry you know blossoms um, again in the United States or if it you know if it manages to sort of develop out, outside the United States, um, it means a, a, a very different shape of for the supply curve, um, which which could which could be a problem for them. Now on the other hand. Um, one of the reasons that people often say the shale revolution happened in the United States is because we have private mineral rights and you know a little bit less regulation than 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 other parts of the world, um, and that meant that a, lots of sort of mom and pop style independents could could you know strike out, you know spend their last dollar on a piece of land and borrow some money to you know to, to drill their last well uh, in a way that's you know fundamentally different than the way that uh, the super majors develop these enormous projects in in other countries, and I think that um, unless you know. Uh, the property rights regime, at least as it, you know, uh, relates to to oil and gas uh, drilling rights, um, 
changes drastically around the world. It's still going to be the case that you know big companies are going to be dealing with 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 you know with governments to to acquire large scale um, drilling opportunities, and and the majors are and the majors and the super majors are going to do a better job of that, and they're going to have more more clout, more bargaining power, and more ability to move capital overseas to do those things than um, than a, than a bunch of smaller independents would. I mean, I could be wrong. It might, it might be the case that uh, in every country that has, you know, uh, uh, shale resources, like so, Venezuela, sorry, not Venezuela, Argentina, China, um, parts of parts of parts of Europe, um, it could be the case that that an indigenous, you know, independent, you know, mom and pop producer industry sprouts in those in those countries, and and uh, you know, they could replicate the experience we've had here. But I, my gut feel is that it's more likely that you know when or if and when a shale industry develops outside of the United States, it's going to probably be run by the, by the, by, by the majors. Now, are they going to make as much money on it as they're making uh, doing uh, big offshore projects? Unclear. And so that's uh, globally. The U.S., you know, one, uh, one I think, wild card, it seems, is the recovery factor uh, mm-hmm. for these plays. Mm-hmm. And so uh, you mentioned in your article on Forbes, um, you know, this idea that in the early days, the recovery factor for the for, for some of these shale resources was as low as 5%. Yep. Um, some of them are now getting up around 10%. Mm-hmm. And we had uh, the chief economist for BP, Spencer Dale, here earlier this year saying that, uh, you know, a recovery factor of 25% at some point in the next 10 years isn't uh, science fiction, that it's very possible. Sure. Um, what is the future of, of shale in the U.S.? I mean, what's the... If 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 we if we couple these two ideas of um, you know rapid learning and improvements in efficiency and, and an understanding of how to develop the resource with the currently you know very low levels of resource recovery, it seems like you know the product of those two things could be you know a, a, a big a, number a big number. Yeah, so um, we're starting to see the early phases of this sort of increase in recovery numbers uh, in what in what the industry calls refracts. Um, so uh, it's becoming common in North Dakota and in, and in the Eagleford, and I think it'll eventually be pretty common in the Permian, um, for, an, for an oil company to develop a well in one year, let it produce for a couple years, um, and then go back and frack the well again at, a, you know, at slightly different points along the length of the horizontal in order to introduce a whole new source of permeability um, in the well. And in a lot of cases, refracts are sort of basically you know, bringing wells back to their sort of early age in terms of productivity. Um, which is exactly kind of what you'd expect with a story um, involving increasing recovery rates over time. Um, what's sort of interesting about about refracts, sort of economically speaking, is that they're they are going to be about half as expensive as drilling a new well uh, because you don't actually have to drill the hole, you don't have to drill you don't have to drill the horizontal segment. You just bring the completion rig back on site um, and sort of do the completion over. Um, and so uh, I think that you know refracts it. Are going to involve some more learning. It's you know certain 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 plays are going to work better than other plays, and it's you know it might actually turn out that the best completion design you used you know for the original uh, completion will be different than the best completion design you need for the for the refrac. Um, but I I think that you know that is going to be a big part of increasing recovery factors. Um, uh, I think you'd probably need to talk to an engineer to get a, to get a better sense for whether or not you know a twenty five percent recovery factor is uh, is science fiction or not. Um, at least without refract. So is it going to be possible for, um, for an EP company to, to drill a shale well and frack it one time and be sure they're getting 25% out of it? Um, I don't know. Um, but I think refracts are going to be, you know, the first step towards that. Um, and refracts are definitely going to get tried in basically every single shale play in the United States. So, um, Increasing recovery factors are without a question, you know, for real. So we have this now, uh, we have this dynamic where, 
uh, oil prices have collapsed. We've had two years now of, of much lower oil prices than what we saw over the previous, you know, three or four years. Uh, the resilience of shale has contributed to this environment of lower for longer, where it has taken much longer for the oil market to return to some semblance of balance. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've had major oversupply now for that whole period. Uh, globally, we've had massive inventory builds, and it looks like we might just now slowly just start starting. We might be starting to see the first signs of uh, supply and demand coming into equilibrium, mm-hmm. um, and, a, and a, in a if not a complete stop, pretty close to a stop in inventory builds. And uh, you know, a key question is when. You know, all this investment that hasn't gone into, um, you know, big complex offshore projects, ultra deep water, new sources of supply outside of OPEC um, that, you know, might have otherwise come online in 2018, 2019, 2020. If those projects aren't going to be there because the investments weren't made the last few years in this low price environment, we're really going to be looking to shale to help fill a lot of that, Mm -hmm. a lot of that hole. What's your guess? Can shale do it? Um... You know, predicting oil prices, you know, well into the future is a is a fool's errand, unfortunately. I was going to ask you to, ask you to predict know, the price next. Predi- predicting I'll, okay, I'll take quantities, that off the table. Predicting quantities is the same thing as predicting prices, Sam. So, <laughs> um, so, uh, so, so, I don't, I don't, I don't know if we want to go on record, you know, picking a number, but um, you know, we went from I think you know you said it a number earlier that was you know something like less than a million million barrels of shale a day in the United States, say in two thousand nine or two thousand eight or something like that to, you know, well over six or, or, uh, of shale and, of, of shale. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, somewhere, somewhere around five, uh, you know, could we, could we do 10 in the United States? Um, it's, I think if you look at the forecasts from the North Dakota, uh, uh, department of uh, mineral resources. So, you know, that's the main regulator of, of shale there, uh, before the crash, before, before the, 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 the fall in oil prices, they were predicting, you know, I think at least 50 or 60% more, more uh, oil production before North Dakota peaked. Um, and again, those peaks are sort of based on assumption of sort of existing technology and not necessarily improvements the way that um, we've actually we've actually seen. Uh, there's you know a bunch of uh, shale formations in the United States that were just getting started when 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 uh, when prices collapsed, and uh, you know those formations might actually sort of you know roar into existence. You know uh, if it turns out that they can they can actually be profitable at fifty dollars a barrel. So, and I'm thinking about the Narrabar, for example, and you know some of the shale development in Oklahoma. Um, so. Is it worth picking up a particular number? Probably not. Um, but uh, I think North American shale is, you know, is, is, is here to stay. It's not going away. Um, the idea that you can use fracking to, uh, to develop, to sort of, to develop shale resources is, is, you know, you can't make that go away with oil, with, with low oil prices, the way that you can make, um, you, you can make sort of offshore investors unwilling to, you know, try their hands at, you know, a billion dollar offshore project, uh, if there's a chance that oil prices could fall 50% again. So, um, I think that sort of risk versus reward difference between shale and conventional exploration, um, is going to mean that shale has more staying power than, than these kinds of, um, big offshore projects. Uh, whether or not it can actually fill their shoes as they sort of, you know, as, as the, the canceled projects, you know, start to start to, you know, meaningfully affect, affect supply, we're going to have to see. Um, but on the other hand, you know, if, if it can't, it's going to mean a, a big run up in prices that, uh, that the shale producers will probably um, exploit as heavily as they can before the Saudis change their mind, I guess. Right. <laughs> um, 
Well, I think that's a perfect uh, a perfect uh, way to leave it. So that's all the time we have for now. Thanks for joining us, Tom. Thanks, Sam, for having me. Uh, make sure to subscribe to the Off the Charts podcast wherever you get your podcasts, including on our website at epic.uchicago.edu and on the iTunes store. And be sure to read Tom's piece on Forbes.com, which is up today. Thanks for listening, and until next time, I'm Sam Mori. <laughs> <laughs>